Coming up on this week's Dan Cave, the NFL season, thankfully, is here. I'll preview the Seahawks' home opener versus Cincinnati with why they'll win and why they'll lose, as well as give you the three Seahawks I'm most excited to watch. And with the Antonio Brown drama boiling over in Cleveland, I'll make a link between what happened there and what's happening in Seattle. The Mariners are winding down their season, limping towards the finish line, but will stay positive. I'll give you three very good things happening in Seattle right now. I'll give you my weekly NFL picks, go over my fantasy lineup, and I'll give you my first impression of Anthony Gordon as the starting quarterback of the Washington State Cougars. Kickoff for the Dan Cave is up next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vienz. Welcome back into the Dan Cave, episode 49, as we begin our second Seahawks season now after the existence of this podcast last year. And this is always a a tough time of year. I'm actually going to start out talking about some Mariners before we dive deep into some Seahawks and NFL stuff. Um, It's a tough time of year because the Mariners essentially for the last 20 years become or have become irrelevant as soon as the Seahawks season starts. And if there's anything um, that I crave for in my sporting life, um, there's nothing I crave quite as much as when the day comes when the Mariners are relevant and they're in a playoff race. And that chasm between Monday and Sunday between Seahawks games isn't so vast during the month of September. And that we get meaningful baseball games during the week as we prepare for the Seahawks to play on Sunday. And if you know me, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that I believe those days are coming. Uh, You also know that I believe that progress in this first year of the rebuild is positive on almost every front. And if you're a regular listener, you probably believe that too. But the Major League season isn't quite over yet. There are 20 games left. The Mariners are definitely limping towards the finish line, 58 and 84 overall now. They've lost eight of their last 10. Um, They have two more games against Houston this weekend. And that gives us a quick little snapshot to put some context in the season and the gap between those two organizations as the Mariners currently sit 34 games behind the Houston Astros. And we're going to get into, as as we get to the actual offseason, we'll look uh, closer at that gap. It seems daunting. It seems ridiculous, really. 34 games could be 36 in a matter of 48 hours. Um, How do you overcome that? We're going to look closer this offseason at the Astros' window, um, some of the challenges they're facing to stay competitive with their payroll and and their roster, some of those challenges, um, and then kind of how that matches up with the Mariners' timeline and how that worked into this whole plan um, and how long ultimately we think it'll take to to bridge some of that gap. Um, It's really no surprise that they're not playing well down the stretch because of injuries um, and some other things. The lineups that the Mariners are running out there every day, it to say patchwork would be kind, you're, you're playing multiple utility players at some points. You're playing rookies. And, and it, again, a reminder to anyone watching the Mariners these days and wondering what the hell is going on. Most of the names being written on the lineup card on a daily basis are not the names you're going to see next year and the year after. They're not the key figures in this rebuild. And next week, I'm actually going to take a shot at projecting the 2020 opening day lineup, and then we'll take a look at the pitching staff in the next week or two after that. So keep that in mind. But I wanted to, again, as I have done all year, point out some of the positives. And I've seen some real positive developments over the last few weeks over the last month and I wanted to boil it down to three for you so as you watch the Mariners and you still should you should watch some of these last 20 games because it's fun to watch these developments I think and I'm gonna I ordered them from three to one in in the manner in which I think they they mean the most to the club and they really could be in any order because this first one which I've numbered three could easily be number one the development of Justice Sheffield it's been a roller coaster this year he had the great spring training we were all excited 
The assumption was he would start the season in AAA at Tacoma, get his feet wet, spend about six weeks to two months there, come up and finish the season with the Mariners. But it was a disaster in Tacoma. Whether he put too much pressure on himself, whether it was uh, the hitter-friendly ballparks in the PCL, the juiced baseball, whatever it was. He, he got out of rhythm. His mechanics got messed up. It started to affect him mentally, and then it started to snowball, and the numbers were, were horrible. You read a lot of things about how the James Paxson trade ultimately may have been a mistake or may have been a bust because Sheffield is, is clearly the key uh, to that trade. So they sent him down to Arkansas. A little bit more pitcher-friendly. Not the juice baseball. Some of the Mariners' key figures in their pitching development process are in Arkansas. He's come back up in September. He's made three starts now in the major league level. And the overall numbers don't look great. Last three starts since rejoining the the big the big club. 13.1 innings pitched, 18 hits allowed, 8 earned runs allowed, 5 walks, 15 strikeouts. Uh, the walk-to-strikeout ratio alone looks solid overall because that was really the problem in Tacoma. He was walking guys. He was walking four or five guys a game. And his strikeout numbers were down too. So five walks, 15 strikeouts, 13 innings, pretty strong. His FIP overall 5.42, not impressive either. But we're seeing some signs. And with rookie ball players in baseball, I think more than any other sport, sometimes you have to look at those little things beyond the numbers. <clears throat> Excuse me, still finding that that lingering cold that kicked my ass last week, and if you listen to the episode, and oddly enough, last week's episode set records for a number of listens within a week, so uh, most of you did hear my voice back then. Uh, so I apologize if I have to cough or clear my throat a couple of times during this. Um, I made a couple of bullet points here on things that I'm seeing from Sheffield that I like and and take it one step further that I'm excited about. First one's his makeup. After what he went through in Tacoma, one of the first things you want to see is is how does a guy deal with that mentally? And you hear Jerry DePoto talk about this um, a lot. It's a focus of his development staff and, and what Andy McKay's doing in the organization is they want, ultimately, before they ever call these guys up, they want to see them fail at some point and they want to see how they react to that and how they respond to that and how they adjust to that. It was one of the mistakes of the Jack Zarenchik error. If a top prospect had two good weeks, Mike Zanino, they would call him up. Didn't give him enough time to fail and work through that. We saw his makeup in how he responded to the demotion to Arkansas. Um, it was immediate, the way he approached that and attacked his development down there. And then since he's been back up, and the one thing, thing that we're seeing within games, in his first two starts in particular, is how he battles through a tough inning, a 30-pitch inning. He's not getting some strike calls. He's not putting hitters away. He's got runners on base. Those first two starts, it seemed like he was starting every inning with second and third. And the way he battled through that in limited damage tells me a lot. Kind of going along with that, my next point is he shows no fear. He's not afraid to face a good lineup, a good hitter. He doesn't give in to hitters, even when behind in the count. That's an important quality in a starting pitcher. The pure stuff. We've gotten to see it up close now. <clears throat> There were reports when he was down in double-A that that fastball that used to touch 96-97 and sit 93-94 was more 91-92. We're seeing him hit 95 and 96 at times in his last three starts. The slider that we've heard so much about is clearly plus. 
It's a real devastating pitch. And in his last start in particular, got a lot of swings and misses with that slider. And maybe the thing I'm most encouraged by is that we hear about how the changeup is a work in progress. And he didn't use it that much in the minor leagues. He's been using it, and he used it more in his last start. That kind of goes back into no fear. It's a pitch that he hasn't typically had a lot of confidence in. But for him to differentiate himself between a potential high-leverage back-end reliever and a mid-to-top-of-the-rotation starter, that changeup has to develop. It has to at least become average. And there's been signs... There's been promising signs. And it all kind of came together in his last start against the Cubs. Five innings pitched, no runs allowed, two walks, seven strikeouts. That slider was devastating. The changeup looked good. It was at, at least it served a purpose as a show-me pitch. And that's a good lineup we're talking about. Okay, this, this start didn't come against the Detroit Tigers. It came against the Chicago Cubs in Chicago. So real promising stuff from Justice Sheffield. It's fun to watch. Number two is... The changes that Kyle Seeger has made continue to take hold. If you were skeptical that it was just a hot streak, hopefully with each passing week, and he just hit two home runs in a game again the, the other night, you see the evidence that the changes he made are real, that he has stuck to the changes, he's committed to them, and that it's it's working. His season average is up to 251 with an 840 slugging percentage. His career batting average is 257. His career slugging percentage is 770. And if you remember the horrific start he got off to after he came off the injured list, he looked terrible. I didn't look it up, but I but my recollection is he hit 170, 180 for the first three, four weeks. He's now up to 251, 840 for the season. He has 20 home or 21 home runs on the year. He had 22 all of last year. 21 home runs this year and 319 at-bats. Last year, 22 and 543 at-bats. His last 15 games, he's hitting uh, his full slash line, 273. 394 is the on-base percentage, 582 slugging. And this is, to me, most encouraging. Walks to strikeouts, 9 to 14. He seems, with the changes, he seems to really be in tune with and locked in on what he can handle, what he can hit hard, what he can punish, and what he can't. He's being selective. He's taking walks. He's not up there desperate. He's not up there hacking. He's swinging loose and easy. He's a three-win player as we sit here today, 2.9. His war is 2.9. In just 86 games. His best seasons were 2014-2016 when he was just over a five-win player. Over full season. So, this really changes the outlook for the next two years. That's one position now. I would be really surprised if the Mariners tried to trade Kyle Seager this offseason. And we'll get into this more as we get to the offseason. But I just wanted to make this point. I think the most that many of us hoped for when he came back off the injured list was that he would just do well enough to reestablish some value so they could trade him. Get out from underneath the $38 million owed to him through 2021. He's got a $15 million player option for 2022. But here's the thing. There's not a third baseman in the Mariners system that looks like a long-term successor or an answer at all. Shed Long can play some third base. He's not going to be the everyday option there. Something that Noel V. Marte may ultimately profile best at third base instead of shortstop. He's 17 years old in the DSL. He's years away. And there's no, there's no guarantee we'll ever see him. Austin Shenton did some nice things in his rookie year this year, his first year in the organization after being drafted in June. But there are questions about whether he can stay at third base. There isn't a guy. There, there's someone in this organization at nearly every position you can look to as part of this rebuild and go, okay, waiting for him, waiting for him, waiting for him. If he develops, we've got that nailed down. Third base is not 
the case. So unless a team came to the Mariners with an exciting third base prospect who was major league ready, um, the San Diego Padres come to mind. They have a third baseman, Ty France, who's sitting at AAA, dominated AAA this year. He's blocked by Manny Machado. I'm sure Jerry Depoto would love to get his hands on Ty France. But the Padres aren't going to want Kyle Seager because they have Manny Machado. So I just don't see a match with another organization with the needs the Mariners have. It doesn't make a lot of sense. What does make sense, if these changes are legit and they stick, is that Kyle Seager is a really productive everyday player. He's above major league average. Still plays an outstanding defense at third base. Great clubhouse guy. Hard worker. These changes stick. He's part of this thing. I could even foresee a situation where the club exercises their 2022 option and he's with this team into their next winning window. So watching Kyle Seager has been really fun over the last month or two. And then the number one thing for me is to see all the bullpen arms making a case for 2020. We talked about this six, eight weeks ago when we were still talking about guys like Connor Sadzek. And then some injuries hit. Sadzek got hurt. Austin Adams got hurt. Dan Altavila got hurt. But I wanted to highlight three pitchers that I think you can get excited about being part of the bullpen for next year. We've talked ad nauseum about how they're going to have to build a bullpen for 2020. It's the easiest thing to build in an offseason. Jerry Depoto historically has shown to be very adept at doing that. He may have more pieces to next year's bullpen present on his 40-man roster currently than many of you might think. And here are three. Sam Tuivalala. Took him a little bit longer than expected to come back from the Achilles tear from last year. But he's had a really solid and quiet second half since he's come back off the injury list. And I say quiet because he doesn't pitch in a lot of high-leverage situations, although it seems like they're tending to use him more now in the 7th, 8th inning. He was acquired to be a multiple-inning, middle-inning guy that would pitch the 5th, 6th, 6th, 7th, go through the lineup once for you. 16 innings pitched this year since coming off the injured list, just three runs allowed, six walks, 17 strikeouts. He's just 26 years old, four years of control left. Tuivalala, a real key piece to this bullpen moving forward. It's good to see him come back healthy. Austin Adams is back, and while it's a small sample size, he seems to have picked up where he left off. That, first of all, there's the relief. The injury wasn't significant. It wasn't severe. Not something that's going to affect him long-term. He's pitched 1.2 innings since his return, only given up two hits, walked one with two strikeouts. But the stuff looks really good. For the year now, 26 innings pitched, 14 walks, 45 strikeouts. 28 years old, has a ton of... Club control left ahead of him. Cheap, affordable. I think Austin Adams has a chance to be your closer next year, although I suspect the team will go out similar to what they did this year and, and find another Hunter Strickland type to be the actual closer. But Austin Adams could be your eighth inning guy. He's definitely going to make a case for being a high leverage reliever for the team next year. Dan Altavilla. It's been such a roller coaster for him over the last three years. He'll dominate for a month. Hit 9,900 on the radar gun sometimes. And then the fastball looks straight as an arrow and he gives up home runs. He's battled some injury issues. And when he went on the injured list earlier this year, it was a little scary. They started talking about flexor bundle and elbow. And how many times do you hear that and see it lead to Tommy John surgery? He worked his way back. He came back and he looks as dominant as ever. In his last three games since coming off the injured list, 2.2 innings pitched, only given up one hit, two walks, five strikeouts. And his last appearance against the Houston Astros, he was filthy, struck out the side. If Dan Altavilla, and this could be a big if, if he can, if this is all clicked for him, he found something, the delivery in his approach that allows him to maximize that fastball and that stuff, and he can stay healthy 
that's a big find for the Mariners as well. So uh, just wanted to touch on those three good things I'm seeing from the Mariners right now. Next week, as I said, we'll look at the projected opening day lineup for next year. That's going to be kind of fun. Although um, it may, spoiler alert, may be a little boring for you because I don't foresee adding any big name free agents to that lineup. And I know that's what a lot of people like to see. All right, let's get on to football because it is football season. Thankfully, after the most painful preseason I can ever remember, and uh, that may surprise some of you to hear because, hey, the Seahawks went 3-1. and one. They had a good preseason. They went 0-4 last year. Well, I think quality of football around the league in the preseason this year was as bad as it's ever been. The number of starters held out of action is as high as it's ever been. I talked a couple of weeks ago how they need to shorten the preseason. There have been some substantive talks between the league and the players union as part of the negotiations for the next collective bargaining agreement to uh, to do just that and perhaps trade that for an extra round of playoff games, which I don't think anyone would have a problem with. Um, it needs to happen. Um, it's it's essentially an exercise in futility, and if coaches aren't even going to use it for what it's um, for what the fans are used to it being used for, then then why bother? Um, so it's. It's great to have some real football, and hopefully some of it will be prettier than what we saw on Thursday night. Bears and Packers, that looked like a game between two good teams that don't get to hit in practice, that held players out of games, that didn't have a rhythm. It was pretty ugly football. Fortunately, the game came down to the end. There was some intrigue there, but for the for the better part of three quarters, it was pretty hard to watch. Hopefully, we'll see better football than that this week. As I approach each game this week, I want to kind of break it down on the podcast in a different way than I'll be writing about the team for Seahawk Maven. Um, two of the weekly segments I'm going to be doing for Seahawk Maven... Uh, I'll do a preview piece each week called Enemy Confidential. Uh, yesterday, I took a look at the Bengals uh, in detail, buy some numbers, um, look at the roster, look at some trends and how they match up with Seahawks. And then the day after each game, kind of a um, the morning after type of approach, uh, I do a closing thoughts column, uh, kind of a day later after things have settled and you have a chance to rewatch some things and think about some things on uh, putting the game into context before you move on to the next week. Um, also, a little side note, some exciting news. The uh, transition is complete, and uh, the Maven Network uh, has completed their takeover of SI.com. And what that means for the website, it's pretty cool. If you go, if you actually go right now to SI.com, and you go to the menu, and you go to NFL, and you go to select the team page, you click on Seattle Seahawks, takes you to our page. So we are the direct link. We are the source for SI.com. Other than, you know, outside of their national analysts and national writers, Albert Breer and Peter King, guys like that. Um, we are the the main source of news and information for the Seattle Seahawks. So great job by Corbin Smith in building the site. I'm happy to be a part of it and um, some pretty exciting stuff coming up in the future. So I wanted to do it this way. I want to look at kind of the um, the optimistic view and the pessimistic view. Why the Seahawks will win, why the Seahawks will lose. This week it was kind of easy. Some weeks it won't always be. Why the Seahawks will beat the Bengals tomorrow at 105 at CenturyLink Field, I think the offense is going to dominate. I think when we saw the starting offense on the field with the starting offensive line unit, they looked capable of running the football against anyone. And Pete Carroll talked extensively this week about how Russell is... uh, better than he's ever been after eight years in the NFL, which you'd expect him to be. But that he has a complete grasp of the offense now in the second season. He and Brian Schottenheimer are completely on the same page. They understand all the all the concepts, and they um, they just know how to get the best out of the offense. Um, slight question mark, if Mike Upati starts at left guard tomorrow, which early, by Wednesday or Thursday didn't seem possible, but he practiced on Friday. He's listed as questionable. And if there aren't any setbacks between now and pregame, uh, even though he hasn't practiced fully in all of training camp, and Ethan Posick has and has looked good, 
Mike Upati may be your opening left guard. I worry a little bit about continuity, but he's a pro. He's played in Mike Solari's system extensively in the past for the 49ers. If he's healthy, there shouldn't be um, there shouldn't be a drop off um, between he and Ethan Posick. And at least now we know that if if Iupati should once again succumb to his history of injuries, um, not be able to make it through the game or through the season, that Posick really accounted for himself this preseason and, and kind of reestablished himself as a prospect um, when it looked like last year in his second year in the league that maybe he was going to be a second round bust really struggled last year but looked good this preseason so I think the offense is going to dominate I think they're going to run the football almost at will and I think there's going to be some explosive plays there because the Bengals last year were 30th overall in total defense and by yards per game they were dead last and they didn't do anything to fix the defense if anything uh they let attrition do its work. They let Vontae's perfect, maybe their best, well, their best back seven player for certain, leave in free agency, went to the Oakland Raiders. Uh, they do have Geno Atkins and Carlos Dunlap up front. Those guys can, guys can get after the quarterback. But even with those two, they were dead last in yards given up per game last year and 30th overall in total defense. And they did not address defense uh in the draft in any significant way other than uh, selecting Jermaine Pratt out of NC State. Um, outside linebacker in the third round, he's not even listed as a starter on this club. Um, the Seahawks offense should have their way with the Bengals. I think they're going to dominate on defense too because the Bengals have all sorts of problems on the offensive line. Only one returning starter from last year would have been Cordy Glenn at left tackle, the former Buffalo Bill. But he's out. He's been ruled out. Uh, he was in the concussion protocol. They were hoping to get him back by the by the end of the week, but he's out. So Andre Smith, who's kind of the former first-round pick who's been a journeyman and really struggled with speed rushers, is now your starting left tackle. Bobby Hart, who has played himself off of a couple of rosters, is your starting right tackle. You have Michael Jordan out of Ohio State. He's a rookie playing at guard. This should be a fun debut for Jadevian Clowney and Ziggy Ansa, who should play, even though he showed up on the injury report as questionable yesterday. Puna Ford, all those guys. We get to unleash now, finally, that front seven. Bobby Wagner, Michael Kendricks, KJ Wright, all playing at the same time. Um, but I, But I think the reason, if I had to boil it down to one, that the Seahawks are going to win is ultimately, I think they're going to control the clock. I think they're going to put long drives together. They're going to have some explosive plays and uh, they're going to dominate on offense. Why the Seahawks will lose. Really, the only thing that I could come up with short of the Cascadia subduction zone shifting and the Northwest being swallowed by the Pacific ocean and the 10.5 earthquake that they predict is going to happen someday and swallow up most of Western Washington and obliterate our state it's it's hard to see a path for Cincinnati to win this game at all. I think the point spread last time I checked was nine and a half. I just don't see it. You have first year coach and Zach Taylor installing a new days, but for with the Miami Dolphins and one year in college. Coached the wide receivers for a year in LA. Coached the quarterbacks last year. Now he's calling plays with Andy Dalton as his quarterback. AJ Green is out of this game. The Bengals do have some speed on the outside. Tyler Boyd is, is an excellent number two receiving option. John Ross, the former Husky, is finally healthy, allegedly. Um, and we know, because of watching him on Montlake, how explosive he can, be, he can be. And they have Joe Mixon in the backfield, one of the more physical runners in the NFL. About half of his yards last year came after contact. Um... But this, this gets really simple. Stop the running game, and you're going to dominate on defense as well as you dominate on offense. I think the only way the Seahawks lose this game is if they have one of those games where it's just sloppy. It's supposed to rain tomorrow. A lot of penalties. A lot of turnovers, some key turnovers. They don't find that rhythm on offense I talked about. They get some three and outs. And the Bengals spring a couple of big plays, I guess. Maybe hit John Ross on a broken play. 
it's hard to see any other way for the Bengals to win. I don't see them. I don't see Joe Mixon having a 20 carry 130 yard day against this defense. Cause I think the Seahawks are going to be an elite run defending team. I believe at the end of the day that the margin of victory for the Seahawks tomorrow over the Bengals will be the largest margin of victory in the league this weekend. So finally, the Seahawks seem to get a break from the schedule maker. The last couple of years, you feel like the league office has had it in for them, opening on the road, opening against good teams before they can really get get their kind of get their bearings about them. Um, with some of these changes, with Clowney being new and Ansa playing for the first time in a couple of years, and all these rookies that they plan to give significant minutes to. We're going to see Cody Barton. We're going to see Marquise Blair. We're going to see Ugo Amani. We're going to see DK Metcalf. It 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 would have been hard to ask for a better soft landing, if you will, uh, for opening day for the Seahawks tomorrow. So I'm excited to get out there. Rain be damned. Three players I'm most excited to watch. I had to whittle this down from about 10. I, I just named a bunch of them. I'm, I'm excited to see all the rookies play. But the three that stand out the most, obviously, it starts with Jadevian Clowney. He said all the right things earlier this week in his media availability. He seems extremely happy. He seems extremely relieved to be here and comfortable here and welcome here. He never had that in Houston. From day one, the expectations of being the number one overall pick, only playing five games his rookie year, questions about his his knee long-term. Heard the bust word as a rookie. And then since then, they didn't want to give him the long-term deal. Didn't want to pay him market value. He's never felt welcomed before. He does now. He's also in a system that, that I think suits his talents better. He's not going to be asked to drop back into coverage. He's going to be able to do the proverbial pin your ears back, go after the quarterback. He only had one week of practice. But he made it through that first week. A lot of times when you see guys come back off of a layoff, you see hamstring tweaks, groin pulls, soft tissue injuries. Made it through the whole week of practice. Justin Britt raved about how physical he is and how how good he looked this week in practice. Can he, can he dominate? I expect to see flashes of that tomorrow. I can't wait to see him in a Seahawks uniform. I'm still in that mode where I'm kind of pinching myself. It's kind of hard to believe that he's a Seahawk. And in the next week or two, I'll talk uh, more at length about what I think the long-term prospects are for him as a Seahawk. DK Metcalf is another one of my three players I'm most excited to watch. Uh, He proclaimed himself 100% healthy just 18 days after minor knee surgery, I think. What we saw him flash in his limited time in the preseason was all of that explosiveness and that elite fifth gear that he has, that overdrive he can kick into to separate from corners and separate from good corners. But what we didn't get to see was him doing that in the preseason with Russell Wilson throwing the football to him. It was Geno Smith. It was Paxton Lynch. He had opportunities for big plays. Had some poorly thrown balls. I cannot wait to see the combination of DK Metcalf catching balls from Russell Wilson, the best deep ball thrower in the league. With the Seahawks establishing the run, using the play action pass, Metcalf's going to have opportunities to make big plays tomorrow. And I think we'll see um, at least one or two. And then I'm really excited to see Will Disley. He, in his first two and a half games last year before tearing his patella tendon, looked like a revelation. A guy that was drafted primarily for his blocking acumen, who was said to have upside in the passing game. And then he was used as a weapon in those first two games, especially the Bronco game by Brian Schottenheimer. Disley's back, and they kind of they kind of babied him this preseason. He played a little bit in the games. But what I saw in practice and, and in the games was he's not even wearing a knee brace. He's 100% healthy and ready to go. And now he has another year under his belt, learned the scheme, feel good about himself and his role in the offense. I can't wait to see how Brian Schottenheimer deploys him and what kind of impact he can make in the passing game 
um, for the Hawks. So those are my three guys. I wanted to touch on something because the big news in the NFL this week, and in particular this morning, is the Antonio Brown story. The Antonio Brown saga. And it's it's kind of been like a train wreck. Like, you can't help but watch it from afar. It's so fascinating to me on so many levels. Not just because the Raiders were on hard knocks this year and we got to see a little bit of it on camera, although it sure looks now like that was just the tip of the iceberg. Um, don't get me started on hard knocks and how boring that was this year and how the Raiders basically short-circuited the whole concept of the show by refusing access it's a show about access and they refused access and it it turned it into must not see tv but that's beside the point what's happened with antonio brown in oakland this year and in particular has been highlighted over the last 48 hours to me it goes beyond soap opera drama it goes beyond a guy being a diva we've seen that before We've seen, we've seen it right here in Seattle. We saw it with Marshawn Lynch. We started to see it with Richard Sherman. We got a glimpse of it last year with Earl Thomas. And this is the point I want to make. And I don't want to take too much away from the piece I'm working on for Seahawk Maven look for that later this week, where I really am diving in deeper to this, but I want you to appreciate what you have in your hometown NFL football team. Because it's really easy in professional sports these days to kowtow to some of these players, simply because you feel like you can't live without their contributions on the field and you can't live without the talent that they bring to the table. And we see it time and time again, year after year after year, the investment that some of these teams make in players simply because they're afraid of how removing that talent from the roster will impact their ability to win games which ultimately affects everybody's job. The Kansas City Chiefs this year gave $54 million to that piece of crap Tyreek Hill in Kansas City. He's never caused problems in the locker room. He's never skipped practices, complained about his contract. And he had one of the most productive seasons last year we've seen out of a wide receiver in a long time. And I know the police didn't charge him with anything, but we all heard the tapes. We heard him threaten his girlfriend, the mother of his child. And in doing so, we heard him threaten the child with violence. We've heard the tapes. The Kansas City Chiefs chose to reward that, that young man and make him a multimillionaire who is set for life financially because they're too afraid to face the prospect of how replacing him with another receiver, another player, might affect all of their livelihoods and their bottom line. <clears throat> the Raiders had to make a choice this week. And the, the, the back and forth over the last 36 hours, my neck is sore. We heard about how the team tried to find him, or or did find him, sent him a letter. General Manager Mike Mayock sent him a letter stating he was going to be fined for the mispractices, the unexcused absences, per his contract, per the Players Association, per the CBA, that that was then going to allow them, if he were to continue that behavior, to void his guarantees, $29 million in guaranteed money, Instead of going into the office, facing Mayock behind closed doors, working with him and John Gruden to work this out, 
Uh, he posted on social media, made a big deal about it, went to practice, threatened Mayock with physical violence, started an altercation in front of witnesses. The team at that time appeared like they were going to suspend him, and he wasn't going to play Monday. But then, lo and behold, he showed up at the facility yesterday in a quote-unquote tearful, emotional apology to his teammates, after which he went off the rails again because the team fined him $215,000 for the altercation in practice on Wednesday, at which point he unleashed another online rant uh, asking for sympathy. I don't even want to read the thing word for word. It's it's If you haven't read it yet, read it. It's ridiculous. The Raiders released Antonio Brown today. They did the right thing. How it even went two months is beyond me. And this is ultimately the point I want to get to. This offseason when Antonio Brown was being shopped, when, when the entire league, the entire world knew that he was available for trade from the Pittsburgh Steelers, ultimately landing in Oakland for a third and a fifth round pick. Every single major sports news media outlet wrote a story about potential landing spots, right? It's the kind of stuff that readers love to consume. It's the kind of stuff that we write about on Seahawk Maven. Every single one of those stories listed the Seahawks as a potential landing spot. Why? Because they thought that Pete Carroll had a history of working with difficult personalities and he could manage Antonio Brown. I scoffed at him back then. It's, I'm on the record. I took to Twitter at the time. No way, no how, never going to happen. Still today, even, there are Seahawks fans. On Twitter right now, you can find it. We should sign him. It'd be, it'd be cheap. Pennies on the dollar because of everything he's gone through. We can get him for cheap. Not worth it. What Pete Carroll has done in the last three years is remarkable, and you don't see it a lot in this league. He took a team to a Super Bowl, won a championship, and built that team from the ground floor up, primarily through the draft, hitting on lower-round draft picks, finding guys that were undervalued, finding superstars that were diamonds in the rough. Built those guys up to be superstars. Watch them all cash in, win a Super Bowl, tried to keep the band together, tried to keep all those players, all of them, ignored some of the warning signs, thought he could manage those personalities. And it all blew up because Michael Bennett, Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, Marshawn Lynch reached a point in their careers, in their personal development, where they thought they knew better than the head coach. And they thought it was about them. Now, I get it. There is a healthy bit of ego required to be a professional athlete. To be able to put yourself on that stage in front of the world and perform at the highest level, you have to be a bit of a narcissist. You have to believe in yourself. Sometimes when no one else does. But when those players reached the pinnacle, made millions of dollars, won a championship, had all the adoration of the fans, had all the respect of their profession, it wasn't enough for them. And in putting themselves before the team, in believing that their way was better than the way that was spelled out by the leader of the organization, They damaged the team. Usually when we see that happen in professional sports, it results in major house cleaning. Usually when that happens in professional sports, the head coach and his staff are fired. The general manager is fired. The owner hits the reset button and they start from scratch. Pete Carroll not only hit his own reset button, and cleaned house, got rid of those guys, got rid of 
that mindset and those attitudes and replace them with players who, A, had a passion first and foremost for football. Antonio Brown doesn't have a passion for football. But Pete Carroll went out and targeted those types of players. Changed his philosophy a little bit. Started to check different boxes when looking at prospects. Both in free agency and in the draft. You've heard the term all ball a lot in the last two years, haven't you? That's a calculated, measured approach by John Schneider and Pete Carroll. They want guys that are passionate about football. Sure, they want to make their money. They want to set themselves for life. They want to be protected. They want to provide for their families. But at the end of the day, they can't stand to not be on that football field and play at a high level. And they also focus on guys that appreciate and value the brotherhood of the team and won't put themselves first. And what's most remarkable is he did that in two seasons. He did that without tearing the roster down to its core, without having to endure a two or three win season. Stayed competitive, made the playoffs last year in what was supposed to be a reset year. And now, this is a Super Bowl contender. With the addition of Jadevian Clowney, make no mistake about it, this is a Super Bowl contender. It's the fourth youngest roster in the league. It's the deepest roster they've had since 2015. It's the most diverse and dynamic roster they've had. It's probably the best locker room he's had since 2012. So forget about Antonio Brown becoming a Seahawk and appreciate what Pete Carroll has done with the Seahawks. And as I said, I'm going to get into that uh, a little deeper later this week in Seahawk Maven because there are some specific examples now of players who have sacrificed opportunity and ultimately income because they choose to be Seattle Seahawks for that culture and for that environment. And that flies directly into the face of some of the accusations that were made by Richard Sherman and Michael Bennett after they left the organization and that Earl Thomas made while he was part of the organization. So let's appreciate these Seahawks, shall we? A couple of things I'm going to do every week also, just for fun. Um, I'm in a pool. It's my second year in this pool. There's about 90 guys in this pool, guys and gals, men and women. And uh, it's one of those pools where you may have done this uh, with college bowl games is I think where it kind of got its start. But instead of picking point spreads or just picking every game straight up, winner and loser, you assign a point value and, and you rank the teams or you rank the games by confidence points. In other words, the, the game that you're most confident, you're sure you're picking the right winner in, gets 16 points. The least confident gets one. And then you total those points up at the end of the week, and that's the winner. Um, so I thought what I would do this year is give you those picks in advance on each week's episode and then recap them the following week so that you can follow along with how we did. Uh, we're already one game into this thing, obviously, because I didn't record earlier in the week. And I'm already in the hole. <laughs> I assigned uh, seven points to the Bears on Thursday night. Obviously, uh, it didn't go that way. Um, and I blame nobody outside of Mitchell Trubis Trubisky. I can't even pronounce his name. I don't want to pronounce his name properly. Um, he's looking like a bust. He was terrible. I had the Bears winning at home because it was Soldier Field and it was that defense and that running game, and I thought with a new coach and a new system in Green Bay. Um, but I'll tell you what, for the first time uh, that we got to see that Green Bay defense, um, for the first time that we've seen the Packers go out and be aggressive and actually spend money in free agency, which wasn't the way under Ted Thompson and Ron Wolf, um, that looks like money well spent. Um, those guys look great. 
on defense and really harassed Trubisky and got after the passer. And uh, if that defense can continue playing like that, um, the Packers are going to be a real force in the NFC. So I'm already down seven points, but here's how I here's how I went with the rest of them. I actually assigned 16 points, as you could guess, to the Seahawks win over Cincinnati. Uh, that's the one I'm most sure about. Um, it was tough this week. Week one's always tough because you just don't have any evidence. It's all conjecture. It's all hypothetical. Um, and we didn't get to see anything, as I said, in the preseason. So I went with Philly over Washington. I went with a lot of home teams this week because of that uncertainty. Philly over Washington is my 15-pointer. Cleveland at home over Tennessee is my 14-pointer. Dallas at home over New York. The Giants as my 13-pointer. Tampa Bay over San Francisco as my 12-pointer. That may surprise some of you. Uh, again, I went with the home team. I am not a Jimmy Garoppolo believer. Um, I think the Jarek McKinnon injury is a significant one uh, for the 49ers. I think that defense is going to be solid, but they're going to struggle on offense, and there's going to be some changes in San Francisco at the end of this year. My 11-pointer, New Orleans at home over Houston. Um, this is an interesting one, and I'm not going to change it. Um, I've got, I had Oakland at home beating Denver, and I assigned them 10 points. I feel as good, if not better, about that pick now. Don't have a lot of confidence in what Denver's doing, uh, other than defensively. But I kind of feel like that the Raiders are going to band together. There's a relief now. There's been a weight taken off their shoulders. Derek Carr was, was, was quoted this morning as saying, uh, there's a relief there now that the team actually practiced better when Antonio Brown wasn't around. So I think they're going to respond to that. There's enough talent there, um, and they're going to win at home. I've got New England over Pittsburgh at home on the Sunday night game as my nine-pointer, my eight-pointer. This may surprise. This is probably my upset of the week, and if I get this right, it'll make up for the seven that I lost on Thursday, my eight-pointer. I've got Jacksonville on the road beating Kansas City. I think that Jacksonville defense is legit. I think they're going to bounce back this year. I think Foles is going to steady that offense. The things you read about Leonard Fournette and his approach this offseason and how he came to camp and how he performed in camp and how he looked, that running game is going to be legit. Um, I may regret that one, but I've got Jacksonville uh, beating Kansas City. Um, my seven-pointer, obviously, was Thursday night. Minnesota at home against Atlanta. Falcons have kind of become a lot of analyst darlings as their pick in the NFC, but I've got the Vikings at home winning by six. I think Darwin Cook's going to have a massive year. Um, I've got the LA Chargers over the Indianapolis Colts as my five-pointer at home. Carolina on the road against the Rams, my four-pointer. I think there's going to be some regression from the Rams this year, and uh, Cam Newton appears to be healthy. I think Carolina is... Uh, Kind of a sleeper team in the NFC this year. Miami, as I look at this now, and this happens sometimes, I'm thinking, what was I thinking? I've got Miami winning a game, but I only assigned it three points. I am not a Lawrence Jackson believer. I don't like what they're doing in Baltimore. That defense is going to take a step back. I think Miami surprises in that game. I've got Arizona over Detroit uh, by two points. Who knows and who cares? And then uh, you could say the same thing about my one-pointer. I've got the Jets uh, at home over Buffalo. Let's take a look at um, the Dan Cave fantasy team this week. Again, each week I'll go over my lineup, and then we'll recap how I did at the end of the week. I loved my draft. Absolutely loved my draft. And when I ran it through uh, Fantasy Pro's um, analysis that I had the best draft in the league. Although going into this first game, I was matched up against the second best roster in the league. And up until about three hours ago, I was projected to lose. But now ESPN's projecting a five-point win because the guy that I'm playing has Antonio Brown. So my starting quarterback this week, Baker Mayfield. My starting running backs, Saquon Barkley and the aforementioned Dalvin Cook. My receivers, Mike Evans, who is fully healthy now after dealing with a hamstring during camp, and Brandon Cooks of the Rams. I've got Eric Ebron uh, of the Colts as my tight end. His value may have taken a hit with the Andrew Luck retirement, but I think a lot of times younger quarterbacks that don't have a lot of starting experience lean heavily on checkdowns and uh, safety nets, and I think Ebron's going to have a big year for the Colts despite the fact that Luck is no longer there. My flex, Damian Williams, went back and forth on this over and over again because 
of the Chiefs signing of LaShawn McCoy. But Damian Williams was dynamic the last four weeks of last year. He was the clear-cut number one running back in camp. Andy Reid has a history of riding one guy the hardest. He's going to catch balls out of the backfield, and this is a PPR league, so I went with him over Darius Geis as my flex, although I think Geis, once he proves he's healthy, is uh, is going to be a real game-changer for this roster moving forward. My individual defensive players, a couple of ex-Seahawks. My defensive lineman is Frank Clark. Um, my safety is Earl Thomas, and my linebacker is Jalen Smith of the Cowboys. Uh, my defense is the Vikings. Usually I stream defenses, but I felt good enough about my roster. I got the Vikings late in this draft. I think they're going to be uh, top five defense in the league this year. Tough opening assignment against Atlanta, but they're playing at home. Um, and so I like them there. And then I went with Jason Myers of the Seahawks. I think he's um, he's going to be a top five kicker in the uh, NFC this year. I think he's going to be reliable. He's going to be consistent. So we'll recap that next year. Before we go, I wanted to touch on Anthony Gordon's debut as the starting quarterback for the Cougars. I'll pat myself on the back for a minute because um, this was not conventional wisdom a few weeks ago. Everybody assumed that Gage Gubrud, the senior transfer from Eastern Washington, was going to be the starter. I had a hunch about Gordon. Uh, I liked what I saw from Gordon. He's um, He's been a program guy ever since transferring from City College of San Francisco. He's been there for three years, absorbed the system, and physically I liked him better than Gubrud. Gubrud's arm did not impress me, and I thought he was overrated uh, by most fans coming from Eastern. What a debut against New Mexico State at home. 29 out of 35. At one point, he was 20 for 21 with a drop. 420 yards, five touchdowns, and he only played three quarters. Here's my thumbnail synopsis of Gordon. And I went back and listened to my first impression episode when uh, Gardner Minshew made his debut as a Coug last year against Wyoming and how impressed I was with Minshew at the time and how I thought he he exhibited some qualities um, of an NFL quarterback. And I'll pat myself on the back again because Minshew made the Jacksonville Jaguars and is the primary backup and the only other quarterback on the roster behind Nick Foles in Jacksonville. He will play this year. I doubt very seriously that Foles will go 16 games unscathed. <clears throat> Anthony Gordon is more talented than Gardner Minshew. He's bigger, and he has a much stronger arm. In fact, I'll say this. He has the strongest arm that Mike Leach has had in Pullman. Arm strength has never particularly been a priority of Leach's in the air raid system. He values accuracy and ability to process and make decisions and reads um, above that. But Anthony Gordon not only has the strongest arm Leach has had to work with in Pullman, but he has one of the quickest releases that I've seen in a long time. The last release I've, I saw this quick in Pullman was actually Tyler Holinsky. I think they have a similar throwing motion. Very, very quick. Obviously, Minshew was facing a stiffer level of competition last year. It was at Wyoming in the altitude against a team that returned eight starters off a defense that led the nation in a lot of categories the year before. Gordon played against an outmanned New Mexico State team and will play an even more outmanned Northern Colorado team today. But I'm excited about Anthony Gordon, and I'm not I'm not standing here saying that because I thought Minshew had pro qualities last year and Gordon is more talented that he's going to be a pro. Time will tell. But you could not ask for a better start. And the worst thing that could have happened for Gordon and the team would be to have him struggle, to have Gubrud come in and look capable, and now you have a quarterback controversy. Gordon firmly established himself as the quarterback in Pullman. And and now if there are any questions about is this a 7-win team or a 10-win team, um, there's reason to believe that he's going to pick up right where Minshew left off. I can't wait to watch more of this kid. I hope he stays healthy because that arm is special. And the ball he throws is special. He will get tested. Obviously, we'll find more about him as we get into Pac-12 play, but just want to give my first impressions of Anthony Gordon. And again, they play Northern Colorado 
today. We'll see how that goes. And then next week, they face a much tougher task on the road Friday night at Houston against one of Mike Leach's former protégés as Dana Holgerson is in his first year there as head coach of the Houston Cougars after leading West Virginia for the last decade. So we'll preview that game um, in a little more depth next week. That's going to do it for this episode of the Dan Cave. Next week is kind of a milestone, episode 50, halfway to 100. Excited about that. Obviously, we'll recap the Seahawks game, talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly from that game, and look ahead to week two at Pittsburgh. And uh, we'll take a look at the Cougars again. And I'll have that projected 2020 lineup for you from the Seattle Mariners. So enjoy the heck out of football. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Subscribe if you haven't already on whatever platform you listen to. You can email the show at thedancaveshow at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. DM me if you have any questions there or just at me on Twitter. If you have any questions or comments about the show, I'd love to use them in the show. If you go to my Twitter bio, you'll see the link to my anchor page where I produce the, the podcast on that link. You can leave a voice message for me, asking me a question, making a comment, making a prediction, challenging me. If you have a different viewpoint about something, I'll use it on the show. I'd love to get your input. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, as always, go Seahawks, go Mariners, go Cougs.